Our goal today is a uh, pretty lofty goal considering all the information we have to cover. But our goal today is to look at the first, give an overview of the first 11 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. As we mentioned in our previous session a couple of weeks ago, when we did our introduction to Deuteronomy, there's a lot of information in Deuteronomy that we have seen in the other books that we have covered, especially Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. For Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law to a new generation of Israelites. As we saw in the book of Numbers, God was angry with the original generation that came out of Egypt, so he destined them to die in the wilderness. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation died out. Now we saw that Numbers brought us to the brink of the promised land with a brand new generation. A generation that did not know Egypt. They did not know God's deliverance out of Egypt. They were not there on Mount Sinai uh, when God gave the Ten Commandments. They were not there when God gave the original law. So this is a whole new generation, 20 years old and younger, and they're standing on the brink of this land of promise, but yet there's something important they need to know. They need to know the law. They need to know this covenant that they have with Yahweh. So Moses, as one of his final acts, as a mediator of Israel, is to communicate God's law to this people, this new generation. So that's what we have here. That's what the whole book of Deuteronomy consists of, a retelling of the law. So, but it's given, as we said, not just in a strict retelling. Among it is Moses as pastor. He's imploring them to keep the law, not just telling them the law, but imploring them to keep it. Uh, and calling them to covenant faithfulness, that their faithfulness is the absolute key to their success, their growth, their health, their well-being, their prosperity in the promised land. Everything hinges upon their obedience to this law. So that's why Moses is so emphatic about them being faithful to this covenant. So as we enter into chapter 1, uh, the first five verses of the book of Exodus is an introduction, and it establishes the historical and the geographical basis for the rest of the book. Uh, the speeches that Moses delivers here, we said that there are three major speeches that Moses gives. The first speech will go up through about chapter 4. The next speech will start about chapter 5 and go through the majority of the book in 26. And then Moses' third and final speech at the end of his life. So Moses' first speech begins here in chapter 1, verse 6, after your introduction in the first five verses. And what we have here is setting the stage for the retelling of the story. In chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, what Moses does is he's taking them all the way back. So what he does in verses 9 through 18, he recalls Moses's, uh, he calls the appointment of leaders over the fast-growing people. You remember how the people began to grow and multiply, and Moses was dealing with all of the problems of the people, and it was a heavy burden that was upon him. So what Moses did is he told them to look out upon each tribe and gather the men of wisdom and understanding and experience to serve as leaders. So Moses set leaders over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over 
tens. He also tells the judges of the people that they were commissioned to judge righteously, that they were not to show partiality in their judgment. So he's taking them back to the time in, here in verses 9 through 18. In verses 19 through 33, we see here on our paper, describes Israel's refusal to take possession of the land. One of the things that Moses is going to do is he's going to go back and look at the shortcomings of the generations before in order to use that as an example for the Israelites today to be faithful. So in verses 19 through 33, it describes Israel's refusal to take possession of the land with the episode of the 12 spies. And we looked at that in detail when we were in the book of Numbers. Moses recounts how God had promised to give them the land, and they were to go in and take possession of it. And it was literally that simple. They were supposed to go in, take possession of it. God had promised them victory, but yet because they wanted to send spies into the land, because of the report of the 10 spies that came back negative, the people did not believe God. Hence, they rebelled against God and they did not enter the promised land. They murmured against Yahweh. They rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. And so Moses uses this as an example. Then when you go down in verses 34 through 46, we find the penalty for Israel's rebellion. And that is how not one from that generation would enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. However, he said that their children would enter and take possession of it. And their children is now the generation that Moses is speaking to. Uh, also in this passage recalls Israel's defeat at the hands of the Amorites when Israel chose to go and fight against them in spite of God telling them not to. So this serves as an example to tell this new generation, do not try to go and fight without the Lord because you will fail. Stay faithful, believe God, let Him fight for you, and you are assured victory. So after the, speaking about the rebellion, after speaking about the penalty of the rebellion, we go into chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, which picks up our story with the wilderness wanderings. Because the people rebelled, they were sentenced to wander in the wilderness. Um, he talks about going through Moab and Edom and Kadesh until those uh, 38 years had passed, and then the entire generation died out. At the end of these years, God, being faithful to His promises to Israel, began to elevate Israel in the eyes of the other nations, giving them dread and fear of Israel. And then God proceeded, we saw that in Numbers, to give Israel military victories. So after the generation died out, God begins to elevate the nation. He begins to let the other nations see them and fear and fear their God, and God begins to give them victory. Then as we um, look in chapters 2, verses 26 through the end of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, we recount two battles that we had already talked about in the book of Numbers. That's the battle in which God gave the Israelites victory over two kings, that's Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. In these battles, God uh, gave Israel complete victory where they utterly defeated the enemy. They captured all of their cities. And this was a foreshadowing of what was to come when God would give them victory in the land. So all of this that we've talked about in the first uh, three chapters of Deuteronomy, as you would read through it, is stuff that we've already seen. 
going back from Exodus and then in the book of Numbers. As we come down to the end of chapter 3, verses 23 through 29, that explains that Moses had to suffer the consequences of his sinful actions. So not only did the whole generation suffer, but Moses himself would suffer consequences of his sinful actions. He would not be allowed to enter into the promised land with the nation because of his sin, where he struck the waters, where he struck the rock at the waters of Meribah. Moses was able to ascend to see the promised land with his eyes, but was not able to enter it. And with that kind of encapsulates this story of their beginnings, their failings, but yet God's faithfulness. And as we've said throughout, that's really the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that Israel fails at every stop, but God is faithful to his covenant at every stop. Even though there may be times of judgment, even though there may be times of harshness for Israel, and even though they seem to never learn from their rebellion, you would think after everything we've read in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all of the death, all the people getting struck down, all the ground opening up and swallowing people, all of the killing that we've seen for disobeying, you would think after seeing all of that, the people would get it, but they didn't. So a whole generation dies out. And you would think for the new generation, after seeing the old generation die out, they would get it. But we see that uh, very shortly that they don't get it as well, which in and of itself is setting us up for the surprise at the end of the story, which is going to be Jesus himself as Redeemer. Uh, But we're a long way from that right now as we're here in the book of Deuteronomy. So chapters 1 through 3 is this taking back in time. That's why we you know, didn't spend a lot of time you know, reading certain things because in essence we've read it all uh, when we've gone back through the previous uh, books in the Pentateuch. So then as we enter into chapter 4, we begin to see this call to faithfulness. And that's going to happen from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 11, that Moses is pleading with them. Moses is giving them every reason. Moses is is exhausting this this call to them to be faithful, to keep the covenant, to be dedicated to God, to keep His laws, to follow His ways. He is begging them, begging them, and begging them to keep the laws. Of course, then at the end, he's going to say, I know you're not going to keep them, but yet he's still doing his job as the leader of the nation to get the people to obey. So chapter four uh, is Moses' call to covenant faithfulness, and it expresses the heart of the book's theology with passionate eloquence, namely that obedience to the law is the key to Israel's survival and successes. Israel's blessings were physical blessings. And we'll see that later on in the book of Deuteronomy, that when you come into the land, we'll even see some of it here, but he says, when you come into the land, if you keep my commandments and the laws, God says, you will be prosperous, your crops will be prosperous, your 
animals will be prosperous. Your children will be prosperous and, and fruitful. You know, every, the land will produce. God will give you protection. You'll be blessed in everything. You'll have more than enough. You'll be overflowing with all of these blessings in the land if you keep my promises. But if you don't keep my promises, then your crops will not produce your livestock will get sick and die. Sickness and disease will come upon you as a nation. Your children will be barren, and you can ultimately be overthrown by your enemies and kicked out of the land. So everything depends upon their obedience to the law. Uh, the first and the last verses of this section make this plain. So I do want to read those verses. So if you have your Bible open in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy... After Moses goes through this uh, history lesson with them, here's kind of the switch in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1 of Deuteronomy, Moses says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. That's the key. Listen to the statutes and rules, do them, and that when you do them, you will live and take possession of the land. Hence, the opposite side of that, if they do not hear, if they do not listen, if they do not obey, then they will die prematurely in the land. They will not experience the prosperity of the land and they will lose possession of the land. So Moses begins with their call. And then if you look in chapter 4, verse number 40, in chapter 4, verse number 40, Moses ends this section by saying, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And I do want to point something out right here, not to get sidetracked off of this, because I hadn't intended to talk about this until I read those verses right there. But you can tell when you're reading the language here in the Old Testament, and then you read the language in the New Testament, the emphasis of Israel in Deuteronomy is completely natural. It's completely physical. Um, you know, as evangelical Christians, some of the first questions that we ask is not about the here and the now, but it's about the hereafter. You know, so we say, follow Jesus today so you can go to heaven when you die. You know, follow Jesus today so you don't go to hell. And, and the main thrust of the New Testament is obviously these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Whereas in Deuteronomy, it was physical blessings. You don't find anything in the Torah about what happens after you die. Uh, the emphasis on the Torah is obey God so you won't die prematurely, so you'll live a long life, so you'll live a long time. There is really an absence of, you know, you don't find anybody in you know, Deuteronomy saying if you, if you keep these blessings, you'll go to heaven when you die. It's if, 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 if you keep these commandments, you'll be, your kids will be blessed, your crops will be blessed, all of this will be blessed. So it's almost, and that almost goes for all the Old Testament, it's a totally natural covenant that deals with 
the land, their prosperity in the land, that they want to live long in the land, they don't want to die prematurely, they don't want to be kicked out of the land. Whereas the new covenant, you know, there is no emphasis on a physical land and a physical property. It's all spiritual blessings and uh, spiritual things that we receive from God. So there is a stark difference and a stark contrast. While you know, our emphasis in evangelical Christianity is on our own personal salvation for what happens to us in this life and after we die. For them, it was a corporate salvation and corporate blessings upon the people that they would stay in the land, prosper in the land, and live long in the land. So you see kind of these um, you know, differences between the natural and the physical and the earthly and the spiritual in the New Testament. So that's just some things to point out because there are some things that we're not going to read in Deuteronomy that we emphasize in Christianity uh, today. But that's what the covenant here is dealing with. It's what's happening to them when they get into the land. So that's why Moses prefaces this speech with keeping the commandments and obeying so they would live long and prosper in the land. That was free, all right? That was free. Um, also, in chapter 4, uh, he again shows them that disobedience what the consequences of disobedience are uh, in verses 15 through 31 of chapter 4. Uh, he speaks about the importance of forsaking idolatry. Uh, at Sinai, they heard God speak, but they did not see him, so yet they formed a golden calf. Uh, so Moses is telling them, do not create idols. Idolatry is wrong, and idolatry is bad. If they do, they will lose possession of the land and not live in it as they have been promised. Uh, then chapters or verses 32 through 40 show that show the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of Yahweh, their God. Shows that God could draw near to man without destroying him, something unique in human history. And the quote, did any people ever hear the voice of God and still live? He, of course, did even more than that. He brought Israel out of Egypt by the great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in the land of Egypt before your eyes. The same power enabled Israel to defeat the kings of the Transjordan, and he will enable them to enter the promised land and live in it only if they keep his statutes and his commandments. So we end this section in chapter 4 with the uniqueness of God and the power of God for his people. As we end chapter 4 and go into chapter 5, chapter 5 is where we um, start the retelling of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 4, verses 44 through 49 serve as an introduction to chapter 5. Uh, and it follows with this phrase, This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So that's an introduction to chapter 5. When you get into chapter 5, uh, the narrative picks back up. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Uh, the general section begins by repeating the Ten Commandments as a convenient summary of the principles of covenant living. 
Moses emphasizes that these covenant life principles were not just for their ancestors in Mount Sinai, but it was for them as well. This new generation of Israelites must now accept the law as their own. So again, this generation wasn't at Mount Sinai, or interesting fact, Deuteronomy rarely if ever uses the term Sinai, it uses the term Horeb instead. So when you see Horeb in Deuteronomy, think Sinai. Uh, but the, this new generation was not there at the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. So here Moses restates the Ten Commandments. So what we see in verses 6 through 21 is a retelling of the Ten Commandments. Verse 6 uh, is a preamble to the Ten Commandments, which says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We noted when talking about ancient treaties, there was always a historical prologue, a preamble. This is kind of the preamble, historical prologue. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in the following verses, he retells the Ten Commandments. In verse number seven, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. In verse eight, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. In verse 11, he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. In verse 12, he says to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. In verse 16, he says to honor your father and mother. Verse 17, he says, you shall not murder. In verse 18, he says, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 19, he says, you shall not steal. In verse 20, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 21, he says, you shall not covet. So he goes back over these Ten Commandments. Uh, to close this section, it is recounted how the people did not want to hear the voice of God. They did not want this personal relationship where God talked to them. They were afraid of God talking to them, but they wanted Moses to be their mediator. So that closes out chapter 5, as the people wanted Moses to be their mediator. Then in chapter 6, chapter 6 is unique because it brings about an aspect of the law that we really haven't focused upon yet. I think there's one verse in Numbers that uh, mentions this, but in chapter 6, we find the heart of keeping the law is truly a matter of the heart and a matter of love. Now, so far, when we've been talking about law, we haven't really talked much about love, and we haven't talked about heart. We've talked about law and wrath and justice, but we haven't talked about the heart. Now, this is something that is introduced here, but yet not fully realized until we come to Jesus and the new covenant. Because we all know that the law placed a demand upon the people, but the law did not overall supply the people with the ability to meet the demand. The law demanded you were righteous and you lived 100% righteous, but it didn't give you anything to be able to live righteously. Thus, the law would always declare you unrighteous. So even the law here in Deuteronomy recognizes the fact that obedience is a matter of the heart. Obedience is the matter of the heart. Give sinful humans the choice between good and evil, 
And nine times out of ten, sinful humanity will choose evil. Now, I believe that as humans are born, that we all have the ability when we come into this world to choose to do, we have the ability in us to do good things and bad things. You know, there are people that don't know God and certainly to not up to God's standards because nobody is as good as God. But yet in our human standards, there are people who do not know God and they can do good things. They, they, they can give to charities. They can volunteer their time. Uh, they cannot, you know, abuse their spouse. So there are people that, that don't know God that can do good things. And there are people that can, and those bad people, and those bad, those people can also turn around and do bad things. Even when us, in our sinful flesh, we have the ability to do good things, we have the ability to do bad things. However, left to our unregenerated heart and our unrenewed mind, most of the time we're going to choose to do bad things. That's why God gave them the law to restrict them and restrain them from doing the bad things and hoping they would choose to do the good things. But the problem is people are still sinful. And true obedience is a matter of the heart. So even Deuteronomy in the law recognizes that obedience is a matter of the heart. So the unique feature here in Deuteronomy is the emphasis on the heart and the introduction to this word called love. For here in chapter 6, we're going to find the greatest commandment in the law, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. That's the main emphasis here in chapter 6. That Israel is commanded to love God. Now, to get off in a little bit of what ifs, can you, thinking in our terms, can you command somebody to love somebody else? Because in our day and time, love is really relegated to a feeling. You know, the first time we fell in love, we had these feelings of love. So in our culture, when we think love, we think feelings. Well, you really can't command somebody to have feelings of love for somebody else. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, the old picture where, you know, God puts the gun to your head and says, love me or else, you know, if, you know, tell me you love me or else. You know, we know that emotional feeling love it's not something you can command. It's something that is organically grown as you see the love that other people have, as love is developed that you have there. Um, and while emotion is not absent from this command in Deuteronomy, love, as the Old Testament describes it, is different than how we would describe it. If we would limit love to a feeling, I feel love for God, you know, and this section also, if you've seen what the Israelites have seen, you would probably be more afraid of God than you would loving toward Him. You know, you would obey God out of fear. But the interesting thing here is that in Deuteronomy, Moses is kind of equaling out love and fear. Love God, but also fear Him. See His goodness, but also see His wrath. So you've got these two sides to God that keep you in check, that both spur you to obedience. You know, if you remember when uh, they were at the mountain of Sinai and it was black and it was smoke and there was thundering and lightning, what did Moses say? Moses says, God is doing this so that you will fear him and in fearing him that you would not sin. 
So up until this point, fear has been the motivator of obedience. Well, now Moses introduces not just fear as motivation for obedience, but love can be motivation for obedience. And he starts with God's love for them. How did God love Israel? Here's how God loved Israel. He chose Israel to be his own. He made covenant with Israel, and he's been faithful to their covenant with Israel. So we, we don't find these you know, lovey-dovey feelings of a, what we would define as like a personal relationship, but it's love that equals loyalty. When you're reading about love here in Deuteronomy, love equals loyalty. God's love for Israel was shown in his loyalty to them. Therefore, Israel's love for God will be shown in their loyalty to his law. So the central command addressed to Israel is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is The Lord Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. So again, when you first think love, don't think lovey-dovey feelings or, you know, what we would say in Christianity is a personal relationship. They didn't have a personal relationship with God on an individual level like we do today with the Holy Spirit living in them. But yet, they were commanded to love Yahweh. And love equals loyalty. Love is covenant faithfulness. There's a word that describes God's love for Israel, and it's the term hesed in the Old Testament. And the word hesed is used for steadfast love, but it also means covenant faithfulness. So God's love is his faithfulness. So to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might, means to be faithful to Yahweh with your whole being. So loving him with all of your heart, means to be totally committed to Him alone. When you love Him with all of your heart, is to be totally committed and faithful to Yahweh as their only God. To be totally committed to Him alone, no other gods. To love Him with all of your soul means to be totally consumed. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. So again, it's not void of emotion. It didn't mean that no Israelite could not love God in that way, but that was certainly not the main expression. But to love Him with all of your soul means to be totally consumed by God's ways and by always remembering the law. So he talks about when you get up, think about the law. When you sit down to eat, think about the law, talk about the law. When you're with your children, talk about the law. When you go to bed at night, talk about the law. The law should consume your whole soul, your whole being. And then loving God with all of your strength means to be totally uh, means to totally complete it, that the law is totally completed by always doing the law. So you have totally committed, totally consumed, and totally completed. That's by your strength you do, you keep the works of the law. So this demand for total and abiding love for the one and only God, it runs through this book of Deuteronomy. And again, it's balanced out here in the law with this fear of God. So in one verse, it's, you know, love the Lord your God, your Lord God loves you. And in the next verse, if you don't, you're not going to get God's love. You know, he's going to love you if you love him. And we have this round and round of fear and love and wrath and and salvation that goes along with all of this. Um, So again, parents are to teach their children to love God. Uh, When Israel entered the land, they must not be uh, they must be aware 
not to be seduced into loving the other Canaanite gods. Again, they're not to be loyal to the other Canaanite gods. Um, so this law to love in Deuteronomy is what we call the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for the word hear. So when you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and all of your strength, all of your might. That's what's called the Shema. That's a very special and a very important command to the nation of Israel. Jesus himself even quotes this as the greatest commandment in the law. When he was asked, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Jesus also adds Leviticus 19.18 to it, where he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So when they asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then adds Leviticus chapter 19, loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, of course, we know looking at the scripture from Jesus, he also said, a new commandment I give to you as my disciples. And he doesn't go back and requote this. He says to love one another as I have loved you. And in the context of how Jesus defines love, how does Jesus define love? By laying down your life for others. By caring for others and loving others so much that you're willing to lay down your life for them. So Deuteronomy defines love as absolute and complete loyalty. Jesus defines it as laying down your life for others. That that's love. That having a heart of compassion is love. To seeing the least of these, that is love. Uh, so it's, it's interesting how Jesus, they ask him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? So he tells them, here's the greatest commandment in the law. But when he talks to his disciples, he says, here's a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Under the old covenant, it's here's what you must do. Under the new covenant, it's God saying, here's what I have done for you as an example of my love. To me, that's a beautiful picture. Deuteronomy, here's my love. Keep my commandments and you'll be blessed. New covenant, here's my love. I laid down my life because you couldn't keep my commandments. Therefore, love one another as I have loved you. Powerful pictures of love that we draw. Anything wrong with the love here in Deuteronomy? No, but contrast that with the new covenant. You see the new covenant love is a higher form, not based upon demands, but based upon giving, how a person gives his life for others. Uh, so going into chapter 7, chapter 7 emphasizes uh, Israel's place as God's chosen people, that they are not to devote themselves. Uh, when, you, when you get to chapter 7, and you read chapter 7, 8, 9, uh, and even into chapter really 7, 8, 9, you're going to be like, he's really saying the same thing as many different times as he can. And yeah, he really is. Uh, so in chapter 7, it's the emphasis, because you're God's chosen people, obey him. You know, uh, in, in chapter 8, you know, because of what God has done for you and given you victory, obey him. Um, in chapters 9 and 10, you know, because God did for you, not because of your righteousness, love him, obey him. So he's, 
he's giving them a lot of different reasons why they should obey. But in chapter 7, declares that Israel is a holy people, that they're a treasured possession, emphasizes God's love and faithfulness to Israel and keeping his covenant with them. But God's love and faithfulness is underscored by Israel's faith, love and faithfulness to him. If they're faithful, he will love them, bless them, multiply them. They'll be blessed above all people. Um, the blessings will be their livestock will not be barren. God will not put sickness on them and God will give them victory. That's God's blessings if they love him. Chapter 8 shows that God has promised imminent victory to them in the land. But however, chapter 8 is saying, when God gives you victory, when He brings you into the land, when you're sitting in a house that you didn't build, when you're reaping from a vineyard that you didn't plant, when you have prosperity, be careful not to forget God. Because here's what's going to happen, Moses is saying. You're going to get into the land, you're going to be prosperous, everything's going to be good, and you're going to forget God. He said, and then bad things will happen when you forget God. He says, so do not forget about God's blessings in the land. He goes on to tell them, do not take credit for what they have by thinking they got this land by their own power. Because this chapter, in chapter 8, it ends with a warning that if they do forget, then they will perish in the land. So again, you have promise and warning. When you go into chapter 9, into half of chapter 10, it continues the theme of warning. This time, the warning is that God destroyed, that God's going to destroy these other nations for Israel. But when he destroys these other nations for Israel... Israel has to be careful not to think that their victory is because they are righteous. Because they're not. For Moses reminds the people that they have a history of stubbornness and rebellion. He begins by reminding them of the incident at Mount Sinai. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commandments, Israel was making a golden calf. And this was not just one mistake. They kept making mistake after mistake after mistake. So he's really telling Israel, don't think it's by your righteousness that God's given you this victory. Number one, he's judging the other nations for their wickedness. And number two, he's doing this for his name, not because of your righteousness. And he also reminds them, if it wasn't for me interceding, this nation would have never lasted. For God was ready to ditch y'all a long time ago. Then in chapter 10, we have another important uh, picture that we see here. In chapter 6, we had this issue of the heart. Obedience is from the heart, and they're commanded to love God. In chapter 10, we have this picture of circumcision, but not circumcision as we've previously talked about. Um, chapters 10, 12 through 22 tells that if Israel is to enter the land and be successful, they must have a total change of heart. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him and to serve Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep His commandments and His statutes. Then he says, therefore, in verse number 16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. 
again, we're finding the principle here in Deuteronomy that true obedience comes from the heart. And in order to have this kind of obedience, Moses tells them to circumcise their hearts. Circumcise their hearts. Natural circumcision was the cutting off, the cutting back of the male flesh. It was a natural act of natural flesh, which shows a natural and fleshly work. So he's comparing natural circumcision with circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart is cutting back of fleshly desires and nature. When your heart is circumcised, the old fleshly hardness of that heart, the fleshly desire that kept it in bondage to sin, the, the, um, is cut away. It's done away with. Ezekiel talks about taking the stony heart out of a person and giving them a soft heart. So the issue here is the heart. And even though, and here, here's what I mean by this, even though Deuteronomy, and even though Moses here, it's a command that they're demanded to circumcise their heart so they wouldn't sin, so they wouldn't be stubborn. They didn't have the ability to fully do that. Now, did that not mean that they didn't keep some of the commandments? Sure they did. But they did not have the ability to fully do what Moses is telling them to do, to fully circumcise their hearts. For the circumcision of the heart, the cutting back of fleshly desires, the cutting back of that sinful nature is a spiritual work. And even Deuteronomy recognizes that sin is a heart issue and that true obedience is achieved from the heart. So Deuteronomy presents circumcision of the heart as an important means for attaining its vision of loyalty from a devoted heart. The problem is, and we don't see this till later, but the problem is, is that even though Deuteronomy demanded that their hearts be circumcised, the law in and of itself did not supply them the means to do it. Although in Deuteronomy it's still expected. But however, when we come to the New Testament, we find true circumcision of the heart is found in Jesus Christ. So the demand for circumcising their heart here left them wanting. It left them still in need because even though there was a demand, they had nothing in themselves to meet the demand. But when Jesus comes on the scene, true circumcision is now found in Jesus. Listen to what Romans chapter 5, 28 and 29 says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. You want to know why the Jews wanted to kill Paul? Because he said things like this. He says, just because you're circumcised outwardly and physical does not mean you're a Jew. That's why they wanted to kill him. For one is not a Jew, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a true Jewish person, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Listen to this next phrase. By the Spirit, not by the letter. So I want you to see, even though circumcision of the heart is commanded in Deuteronomy and expected, it couldn't happen 
till the Holy Spirit came and circumcised a person's heart for them. The law demands, grace supplies. It's the beautiful picture of grace. Circumcision is not outwardly, it's inwardly, and it's a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So that God's praise would not be from man, but from God. Colossians chapter 2, 11, In Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Those of us in Christ, we have a circumcised heart. That's why we can obey God from the heart today because we've been given a new heart. We have a circumcised heart. You were circumcised. Not something, here's a commandment you have to. He says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That's a command for them to do. Here it says you already are by Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.3, speaking of the Christians, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit and glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh or no, put no confidence in our ability by the flesh to do what we could not do. So I want you to see that where the old covenant, where the law falls short, it demands, but it can never supply the need to meet the demand. But in Jesus Christ, it's already done. By the Holy Spirit, He's given us a new heart. He's circumcised our heart so that as a believer, yes, we still have our times of sin and disobedience. We still struggle with, with things from time to time, but our hearts have been changed. That's why when a believer sins, when we, when we do have those moments of rebellion, we hurt because it's not our heart, it's not our desire. We're still battling this flesh with this new heart that we have. But with the help of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we can obey from the heart. So circumcision of the heart. In chapter 11, it goes back and teaches the same lesson. Um, if only they will keep the covenant, the future in the land is assured, for it is a land that your God cares for. Um, then he tells them, he reminds them that this law you shall bind it as a sign on your hand. It shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. Uh, though late, later Jews took these instructions literally, even taking metaphorically these words, encouraged the Israelites to let God's commands guide their every thought and deed. The choice is theirs. And then he ends with the choice. So in verse 26, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26 says, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you, and a curse if you do not. So chapter 11 comes to a close with this choice. Blessing and curse is set before you. Later on, life and death. Which one will you choose? A blessing if you choose to obey, a curse if you do not choose to obey. So you can see how in these chapters from chapter you know, 6 that Moses is just imploring them to obey. He's given them every reason to obey. He's given them every warning to obey. So as a good, uh, you know, as a good mediator here between God and the people, Moses is imploring the people to be faithful. So in the giving of the law. So in chapters 12 through 26, we go in more detail into the laws, but um, 
the first 11 chapters have set us up nicely uh, to receive the rest of the law by imploring us to heart obedience to God for their good. Any comments or questions?